you hit the nail on the head and you said confidence. It's mm-hmm. like, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you deep down believe that you're right and you're doing it that way because mm-hmm. you feel good about it, everybody else will see it that way. Hello and welcome back to the Her Life Blogcast. I'm your host, Rachel Malik, and I literally cannot think of a better episode to close out 2020 with than this one. We have such a great guest. I put a couple teasers out before. Drum roll, please. Our guest this week is Dana Commandator, who is about to be such an inspiration to you. I can't wait to tell you more about her. I've loved Dana ever since she was on the Great American Baking Show last Christmas. It was season five of the Great American Baking Show Holiday Edition, and Dana was a finalist. Phenomenal baker throughout the show. Such a cool energy and a great presence. She's a great fashion, which we're going to talk about. We talked all about the show. But beyond that, she's had such an interesting career and such a fulfilling, she's living such a fulfilling life. And I think she has, is filled with so much great advice. And so this episode turned out to be so much better than I even ever imagined it could be, because I think we all have so much to learn from her. And it was really great to just get to sit down with her for a little bit. So I don't have much else to say. I really just want you guys to hear this interview. So let's jump right in. Here we go. Dana, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you. Excited to be here. This is going to be great. I'm glad we finally get to chat. This is so fun. I feel like we've been Instagram friends in my head for a while now, and now it's like all coming to fruition, and I could not be more thrilled. Thank you so much for coming. Oh my God. You're welcome. It's great. So, first of all, happy holidays. How are you doing? How has the quarantine been treating you and your family? Like, how, how are we doing now that it's holiday season? Um, I think we're doing okay. We, you know, I have quite like a group here in my house. I have my, my parents live with me. I have my son, my husband. We had three dogs. Unfortunately, we lost one during quarantine. So now I have two. We're doing construction. So we have workers here. (laughs) So it's, I don't feel like I'm alone. So I feel good. Yeah, that's good. What I have to ask, what is on the dessert menu for the holidays now? I'm sure you have a whole plan. Um, I, I don't really have a plan yet. I, but there will be dessert. Okay. There, will, there will be a ton of it. I usually introduce something new each year, so I'm not sure what that will be this year, but yeah, there'll just be, there'll be something every day. I'm always so curious how people go about it, whether it's you stick to the traditions and it's the same exact thing every year, or if we like to switch it up. I like that. Keep it interesting. Yeah, you have to change something new. I'd love to take old recipes and make something like more modern about them or change a flavor or do something. But yeah, I, uh, there'll be something fun and different for sure. So when did you start baking? Like, where did the journey begin? Is it something you did ever since you were young or did you get into it kind of later? Tell me about your baking journey. My baking journey is, is, you know, I came from an Italian American family. So cooking and baking, you know, you, somebody cooked and somebody baked. Mm-hmm. And I happen to like both. So I, I kind of ventured into both areas very young and I was not very good. My father always talks about the tannies that I made, not brownies, um, because they just, you know, they weren't quite chocolatey enough. Like, I, I made a lot of mistakes, but I used to stay home on, when I was younger, stay home on Friday and Saturday nights and um, I would bake and I loved it. And it was something that I did for, you know, every year, then I would start doing like Christmas cookies each year, but I didn't understand like what temperature the dough should be. So I would always like have a meltdown or something would go wrong. And then, and then I finally was just like, Oh, I can research this and look it up. And then I 
baked and cooked a lot, always for my family and love doing it and love entertaining. And then I, when I started, like I went through menopause relatively early, like in my late forties. Mm-hmm. So then I started baking as an obsession. It became my creative outlet. Wow. And then I just started baking all the time. Cause it's kind of what got me through like hot flashes and being annoyed and mm-hmm. like going through everything. So yeah. then it, that's when it became like an obsession. It became like a therapy. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I think it's always so interesting to think about baking as a stress reliever or a stress inducer. Like I think when you're a new baker, there are so many things that can go wrong. And I've through quarantine, my sisters and I have been trying new things and it gets so tricky and scary. But I think once you get comfortable enough to make the mistakes and learn and grow, it's just, that's when you transition into like the stress reliever zone. So I'm happy to be making my way there. (laughs) You have have made it. Okay, let's transition now. I cannot wait to hear more about the Great American Baking Show and how you got involved with that. But first, I think the reason why you stuck out to me and my sister so much on that show is because you have the coolest style. You stand out so truly. Like I wrote on here, the amount of black manicures I have gotten since seeing you on the Great American Baking. I love it so much. Talk to me about your personal style. Describe it for me. And is is fashion always like a cool thing for you? I just think you have such no. a vibe. You know, it- it's really interesting. I would never say, like my best friend in high school, mm-hmm. she got best dressed. Okay. And like, like I was not, I was probably, pre- I was pretty preppy back in high school. Okay. And I was always a tomboy growing up. And I, I never like felt comfortable really expressing myself too much in one way. Like I wasn't a punk rocker. I wasn't a heavy metal kid. I wasn't, yeah. You know what I mean? So I kind of stayed in the middle of how I dressed and what I did. And then I always thought that you needed money to have style. And that was something that like I grew into realizing that that's not actually the case. You just need to have good taste. (laughs) And then I just found things that I liked. Like I, you know, I was really into like Joan Jett and Chrissy Hines when I was younger. So I love that look, but I didn't, want to go all the way there so I would just kind of tamper it down a little bit you know and try to like do different things and then I realized that certain things are just fun to play with like your hair is your like you just have fun with it and you change it up and you do different things and then you know I started wearing all black out of just making my life more simple you know I love black I love whatever so I, I and with work and everything that I had to do before I would walk out of the house in the morning got me to the point where if I just knew what I was going to wear every day, that would take out half the drama. So it kind of developed out of a need to be simple, looked like, look slightly different, but super easy. I love that. And it is working. When I see you and when I watch you, even on Instagram and everything, I'm like, okay, I got to paint the nails. I have to do a monochromatic look today because Dana is the inspiration. I love it so much. Oh my God. But I love people, like, I love anybody that has, like, a personal style. Like, I don't care if it's super colorful or, you know, whatever it is. It's, it's, yeah, it's what suits you. And it's, like, I look at a lot of women that will do crazy stuff and wear the most insane colors, but it looks great and Mm -hmm. it fits them. And I think it's great that they feel comfortable doing it. That's the thing. It's just, it's a confidence thing. And when you can present your truest self to the world through the clothes you wear and how you present yourself, it's a, it's a cool thing. You hit the nail on the head and you said confidence. It's like, mm-hmm. as, as soon as you have the, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you, if you deep down believe that you're right and you're doing it that way because mm-hmm. you feel good about it, everybody else will see it that way. Yeah, that's style and that's baking. Honestly, like there is a through yeah. line here and it is confidence and I love it. Let's yeah. talk more about the show. 
the Great American Baking Show. Talk me through the application process. How did you, did you have to audition? What was the steps leading up to production? What was that like for you? You know, it was interesting. I had watched the, I guess about five years ago, mm -hmm. maybe, I started watching the Great British Baking Show. Mm -hmm. And I got obsessed with it during like me baking my holiday cookies. Mm -hmm. And I was baking one day and I looked at my husband, I said, I don't care, I'm gonna be on the show. He's like, but you're not English. I'm like, it doesn't matter. I lived there for a while. I will figure out a way to, you know what I mean? To get on that show. And then, you know, that, that didn't happen because there was no way it was gonna happen if you were an American. And um, then all of a sudden I realized that they had an American version of the show. And I was like, all right, I'm on it. I don't care, like there is no, whether I get on it or whatever I do, I'm like, I'm gonna be on it. I don't know when, but I will be on it. So I applied and I didn't hear anything for a while. And then all of a sudden I got a phone call one day and it was like, we want you to apply for the show. We want you to come on and audition. You know, we okay. got your application. We want you, it was for, I guess, season four. We want you to come and audition and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my God, I was so excited. I was over the moon. And I said, okay, when is it filming? And they said, July and August or whenever it was, you know, of that year. And I was like, I, I can't do it. And they were like, what? <laughs> and I was like, I can't do it. Um, long story short, we had planned a vacation. My son is, was so excited about going to Australia. We had planned this vacation to go in March. And then my husband booked a role in True Detective on HBO. So we had to move the vacation to July and August. And I felt so terrible having to move it. We were so happy that my husband got the role. Right. I couldn't, I couldn't move it a second time mm. on him. So I was like, I'm not, you know, I can't do this. I'm sorry. And they're like, all right, can we call you next year? I'm like, please, you know, I'll reapply. I'll do everything, yeah. you know, go through it. You know, they, I mean, they just wanted me to audition that year. I wasn't guaranteed a spot in the show, but I was like, right. I couldn't do it. So then the next year I got the phone call. I had just come back from London. We were on vacation mm -hmm. and I got the phone call to audition again. Mm -hmm. And you, it's a whole process. It's like each step you have to go in and bring a baked good. And right. you know, then you have to send them a bunch of pictures and video and then you have to go somewhere and actually like it, when you make it to each stage, mm -hmm. then you, uh, you, they put you on camera with a bunch of other people and you have to do a bake and then, you know, and then they decide. That's what I think. I just, I always imagined for all of the shows, all the baking reality shows, because there's, there's a handful of them and it's just, I wonder like how far in advance. And also, is it weird to be so in the Christmas spirit, so removed from Christmas? That's the thing I think about all the time. Like you get a second Christmas because you're totally in the realm. Yeah, yeah, you are. But you're also, um, you know, when we were filming, it was super hot. Like you saw it in the tent in the British Bake Off this season, how hot it was and the problems. Mm -hmm you get it really hot, but we were fortunate that like early in the morning and end of the day, it was chilly. And there were times where it was downright cold, you know, okay. like I think the final, it was actually really cold out. Yeah. Um, so it was easy to get into the Christmas spirit, but you know, Christmas spirit, it's like. That's true. You slip right in as soon as the yeah, decorations are up. For sure. Yeah, but I was not going to wear Christmas sweaters and stuff like that. I mean, that's not your mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't dress for Christmas. That's so funny. So talk me through like a day in the life on set when filming is happening. They're long days. I mean, it seems like long days. What is it like yeah. being in the thick of it? Like we obviously get the very boiled down 
here's the most exciting parts, but wh- how was it taxing to be going through this day after day? Like, what is it like? I loved it. I mean, yeah. I, you know, for me, it was, it was so hard to be away from my family for a month. That was the hardest part of it. But it's like going back to college and yeah. being in a dorm room or being in like, you know what I mean? This, with all, all bakers. Mm-hmm. So you're with this really tight knit group of people. You're all obsessed with baking. You spend every waking moment either shopping, getting ingredients, looking for stuff, practicing, you know, preparing for it. So then when you're on camera, I, you know, I work in advertising and I've been in production for a long time. So being on set wasn't anything new to me. So I think that's what made me feel pretty comfortable. And I can understand somebody who hadn't been in that situation being very nervous and knowing that they start and stop stuff easily. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're, you may have to go through something and go back and say it again. And mm-hmm. you know, it's still a show and you wanna do it, but the production team there are the nicest, most yeah. capable, wonderful people in the world. Like I, I loved them and they made you feel so good. Nothing's forced, they don't force a narrative. They don't do anything like that. It's a really, really well done show. and. Yeah. That made me super happy. And I think that translates when you watch it. Like I said, there's a million baking shows and you could really get wrapped up in it. But I think why the Great British Bake Off stands out and why the American Baking Show did the same was because there's such a wholesome air. It's not the cutthroat competitive kind of environment that you expect from other kitchen shows. And I just think... I was hoping you would say that. Like, I was so worried you were going to come on and be like, production is terrible, and they're really just no. trying to force things and da 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 I was so nervous because I was like, ah, I don't, I don't want to believe no, it. No, <laughs> it's, it's wonderful because every, most of the bakers there realize that you're not competing against each other. Mm-hmm. You, you are there to learn from each other and grow from each other, and you're only competing against yourself. Like, you're the one who is going to screw up because, you know what I mean? That's how you're going to get off the show. Like it's, or lose, it's because you screwed something up, right. but you would just record, you know, and go through and do the bakes and do everything. And I, I just got in the zone each time. I would just like yeah. click on and just start baking and have the time of my life. I love it. I, I loved it. About the dynamic. It seems like the tight knit group, like the bakers themselves were very tight and that was a good dynamic among you guys. How much interface, I guess, did you get with judges and with the hosts? You definitely get more um, time with the hosts because the judges, the judges, it wouldn't make, it wouldn't be good if they spent time with you and got to know you because then they might like someone better than somebody else. So you really have no interaction besides when they walk up to you, like they'll walk through in the morning, you know, and say good morning. And you're just like, wow, what do they have on today? You know what I mean? (laughs) Or how's it going to be today? But Mm -hmm. yeah, you pretty much your conversations with them are on camera, what you see. I mean, you don't, obviously you don't see everything. They edit stuff out, but it's, um, it's pretty much that's your interaction with them. Interesting. Oh, I love this behind the scenes because I feel like we've been watching for so long and so many seasons. So to get this inside look is just, it's thrilling. I love it. Do you have a standout bake from your season? One thing that you're like, oh, I will always remember for good or for bad. Like what is the one bake that you remember from your season? I remember them all and I love them all, but I think one of my favorite ones, I mean, my pastries, I love doing pastry. Like, I absolutely love that. And I, and I did well in those in that week. I love my opera cake. But I think my favorite thing, the thing that gave me the most trouble in the run-up to the show mm-hmm. was the gingerbread. Okay. Because 
I am not a, an artistic person. I like, I have trouble drawing straight lines. Like I can't draw, it's like stick figures. You know what I mean? Like I can't do stuff. So when it came to this gingerbread structure, I was like, crap. I know there's so many artists and so many people like engineers to do stuff. So I had to, like, as in advertising, I took that approach to everything. It was like a brief. You had to do a gingerbread structure. So in my head, I'm like, what can I, where can the idea creatively be better than the actual execution? And it was doing a Venice Beach lifeguard stand, which, you know, like a Christmassy version of that. So that was my proudest kind of turn. Like, how can I make, because if you look at it up close, it's not that great. But I love that they actually brought in special beach Christmas music for it mm-hmm. when they showed it. Like that's when I, you know, that's the sort of thing where my husband and I looked at each other and we were like, I got special music. You know? <laughs> so that was probably like my most standout one. And that was a grueling five hour challenge. Yeah. These challenges are just a lot. You touched on two things in that explanation that I want to follow up on. One, the preparation. What was it like before you even got to the tent? Like what did, did you simulate technical challenges? How did you prepare for those kind of things? Nothing? I don't prepare for stuff like that. First of all, you have no idea what they're going to throw at you. That's true. You know, I would basically go through and there's like, I kind of had an idea in my head and the 10 different types of cakes mm-hmm. and, you know, like a, like a Genoese sponge or whatever it is right. and just have a basic idea of how to do it. Mm-hmm. Because as I progressed, and I don't prepare too much mm-hmm. because I, I'm more of a get in, use my experience mm-hmm. and go on with it. And I, I struggled in the technical challenges because I almost knew too much. Okay. I knew something in my head that I thought was supposed to happen mm-hmm. or what I had seen where all you had to do was follow the directions. Mm-hmm. And if you just did that, your experience would take over. Mm-hmm. So there were times where I really screwed up in technical and times where I did fine, but in it was all on just read the directions yeah. and I'm not a good direction follower. So I, you know, it was tough. I called one of my best friends during the show that I've, you know, I've known since we were little kids mm-hmm. and she, and she knows me and she, and she just said, you just need to follow the direction. She's like, yeah. just stop, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, and it was funny, but it, uh, and that was the best advice. Yeah. I but it's true. Like when you really are in your sweet spot, it goes into like autopilot where you just know the feel of it and like your recipes you understand. Then when you get a curveball like this, it's like stick to the directions. That's funny. Yeah. I had to make, I've made um, fortune cookies a thousand times. And when I had to make them for the show, I made them way too thick and I thought it was too thick, but it was because I didn't actually read how they want, like how much batter they wanted you to put in the thing. And the things that, the, that you would get tricked up on in making fortune cookies, I knew those. Right. So it was like, it, that was just frustrating for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the other thing you mentioned, watching it back, what was it like watching your season? I'm sure it was a family affair. Did you bake to like have snacks while you watched? Like talk me through your household on nights when it came on. Well, we would watch it at like dinner time because we okay. were able to get the East Coast speed, which was okay. kind of cool. Um, yeah. And we all sat around and of course, I cooked and baked and, you know, my family sat around and we watched it and it was, it was fun. I didn't have people over cause I like, I just wanted to watch it on my own. Cause then when you have people over, you have to talk to them and stuff. And I didn't exactly. want it. Like you didn't want to host. You just wanted yes. to. Yes. Observe. Yeah. I love that. Oh, that's so fun. I, I'm just, I'm so thrilled. Thank you for walking us through that all. I had so many questions and I was just so no worried. <laughs> Very cool. Like I said, to get the inside look. 
I want to pivot now. You mentioned your career in advertising. Mm -hmm. How did you get into advertising? Was that always the plan for you going out of college or walk me through how you? Yeah, no plan. No plan. I I got married very young Mm -hmm. and I moved to England and it was a terrible marriage and I ended up getting divorced and I did like very odd, like this was all during my Mm twenties. I did odd jobs. I traveled a lot Mm -hmm. um, and just did whatever I needed to, to make some money. And then, you know, we travel and go back and forth. And then I finally, we ended up getting divorced. Thank goodness. (laughs) And (laughs) I, uh, you know, I moved back home and I started working in restaurants and had odd jobs again. And I moved in with my best friend in New York. Mm-hmm. And I ended up meeting my husband. I was doing, I think, a temp job. I was working for a magazine okay. and doing like promotions and things like that. And I met my husband. And then he had a friend who was a photographer that worked at an ad agency. Okay. It was a very small agency. And he said to me, you know, you should, we need somebody. Do you, you want to come work here or you want to come apply for a job? I was like, all right, I knew nothing about advertising. So I did that and I got a job at a very small place and you had to do everything. So I got, I got like advertising boot camp mm-hmm. and learned a lot of different things, but I just thought everybody did everything mm-hmm. as opposed to bigger agencies where people have very specific roles. Mm-hmm. So that I just kept parlaying that into bigger and bigger jobs. And I mm-hmm. just realized that advertising, you know, that that was going to be my career path, but that didn't happen until my late twenties. I like that. And I think that's refreshing because I think so often it, we're like fed this narrative and we talk about this a lot on the show because we're very job centric because we're all trying to find jobs and it's like a very stressful time. And yeah. I think so often you fall into the trap of being like, I have one dream and I'm supposed to know that dream when I'm in high school and then follow this straight line path. And that's just not how life works. So I love stories like yours to be like, you'll figure it out. Like you'll find what you are meant to do and you'll get yeah, there. I mean, we could talk hours about this. I mean, I hire people for a living. And- yeah. And I hire creatives and I, you know, and I do, I do recruiting and I work with that. And I see a generation of young people coming out of school at a very weird time. Mm -hmm. And y'all just got to (laughs) relax. And and there's so much pressure on you when you don't even really know, like you're supposed to know everything right now. Now, I'm also a huge proponent of being responsible for yourself and self-reliant and doing whatever it is. But you can afford to screw around for a while mm-hmm. and just financially support yourself. So nobody else can be over you saying, how come you're not, you know, you know, I paid for you to go to college. I, you know, I did this, I did that. Like, what are you doing now? And it's like, well, I'm going to kind of, you know, you got to get out of your comfort zone. Yeah. That's the most important thing. And try, try different things. Cause you really don't know. Very few people actually know what they want to do when they graduate college. Everybody else is on a path that they don't know that they can deviate from. Exactly. And I think that it's a liberating feeling. It's scary, but it's also liberating because there's a whole world out there, you know, which feels weird to say now that we're like in quarantine and lockdown and everything, but big picture, I think that's good. You might've already answered this next question that I'm going to ask, but what do you think is some of the worst career advice that young people fall into? Is it just assuming that there's one path? Is there anything else that sticks out? There's a lot of things. Um, The most important advice I can give anybody, especially when it comes to doing something, is stop looking for reasons to be upset about something Mm. or to stop looking at reasons or excuses at other people for why you're not being successful and look for opportunities to be successful. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 
There, nobody is trying to stop you. You're the only person that's doing that. There are so many opportunities out there and you just have to figure out a way in and a way to do it. I recently hired someone who did a side project for us, uh, like an illustration. And she reached out to me and said that she loved working with the agency. She felt really comfortable. She feels like this is her home. And she had the talent to back it up. A week later, I hired her. You know, and it, like it went through the whole thing because she tried something. She did something for us. She was happy with the experience. She wanted to, you know, go through it. And she had the talent to back it up. I mean, you combine all those things and you know you're in the right direction and you're doing really well. It's just a matter of knowing what your talents and your strengths are and figuring out the best people to offer them up to. And if nobody calls you back and nobody listens to you or no, that's just wasn't meant to be just move on. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. It's, it's just, it's a numbers thing at that point. And eventually the more you are looking for opportunity, the more opportunity you'll find. Yeah. You talked also in your Ted talk, which reminds me of this because you said kind of do the thing that's in the job description of the job you want, not necessarily the one that you have. And I think that's such a great piece of advice, especially for now, like, I don't have a full-time job, but like I'm doing things that can build up my portfolio on my own to do well. Like, I just think that really hit home with me. And I think I'm hearing that more and more. So I'm trying to like really activate it. Yeah. And it's your attitude and the way that I've seen you, you know, kind of put yourself out there is awesome. You seem confident about it. You have fun with it and you have a lot of energy with it. And like, that's the sort of thing where, Hey, what else are you going to do? Like keep doing it. You could easily have a career doing something like this. It just depends on how, what, you know what I mean? What you want to do and how you want to do it and, um, and how much time and energy you're going to put into doing it. So kudos for that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm like, can I add that to my, to my resume? A little blurb from Dana. I love it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your Ted talk because that was another cool thing that I didn't know about you. I'm not kidding. My sister sent it to me on Instagram when you reposted it just the other day and was like, is there anything she can't do? That was her text to me. I was like, oh, Dana, I'm so I love her. Ted talk. like she, she's going to be so excited to hear this, but talk me through that process. I guess similar to the reality show. What is it like? Do you apply? Do they come to you? What, what yeah, it was, um, it was a TEDx. So it's like a franchise of TED. So it's mm-hmm. not the main stage of TED, of uh, TED Talks, but it was a woman that I had known on social media and she has a special needs child. And she and I had met through mutual friends and we had constantly talked and she was putting together this women's, you know, listen to her mm-hmm. TEDx event. And it was on a day where these were happening all throughout the country. So they asked me to apply for it and write up what I would talk about and what I would do. And I really struggled with trying to figure out what that would be. Cause I was like, cause you know, it's weird to talk about yourself because people start getting on this thing. It's like, why the hell should somebody listen to me? You know, what have I done? But it's like, what have I learned yeah. that? And that's the whole point of a Ted talk is ideas worth sharing. So to me, it was, you can screw up in life and you can learn from it and you can be successful from it. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's not a matter of having everything, it's a matter of balance and yeah. figuring out what that balance and what you can take in life because it's there's no end to what you can do when you realize what your tipping point is mm-hmm. and when you realize that there's always room for improvement and there's always another opportunity. I love that. 
Oh, and I loved your talk. I'm going to listen to it a million times. It's such a good pep in your step. I love the reset button concept. Mm. And I want to ask you more questions about that's coming up. But also another thing I was curious about, have you always been into public speaking? Have you always been a strong public speaker? Because that translated obviously very well. And you're obviously comfortable on camera. You said you have set background. So what was that like? It was, I've always been comfortable speaking in public. I have no qualms about getting up in front of a room and talking. Mm. Whether or not I'm making sense and people are interested is a completely different thing. <laughs> my husband's an actor, Michael, and he was such a big help. He was the one that got me through that because okay. he helped me structure it beginning, middle, end. He helped me figure it all out. And he gave me all the pointers that you need. Mm-hmm. And he kept saying to me, because I work with him a lot, like I'm not a very good actress and I help him audition all the time and I'll read and he'll just look at me like, that's not how people talk. Why are you saying it that way? <laughs> um, but with this, it was super interesting because I got to, you just have to know what you're saying. Don't memorize the lines. You know, you have to do, I think it was seven minutes. That was our talk. You have to know the story and just get used to it. So I recorded myself saying it and I played it constantly for a week when I was in the shower on my way to work when I would go to bed at night and then I would start saying it along with it and I would, you know what I mean? And start doing it. And then I would, and I would like say something or do something. And I'd be like, Oh, I don't like the way that looks or I don't like the way that sounds or I said like too much or um too much. And it, the familiarity with it, you know, the whole 10,000 hour thing and everything it's, that's what it kind of came down to. And he said to me, he's like, you're going to, you're going to be backstage and you're going to have a moment where you almost want to pass out. And you just need to remember that you know what you're doing and you're getting up there. So sure enough, I'm back there. You know, I've got like my boots on. I couldn't wear heels. I wore my boots because I had enough of a platform that if I was like, oh, you know, I'd be fine. Um, I had a bottle of water and I started to almost hyperventilate, you know, and then I was just like, just getting some, take a deep breath, go. I've got this. What's the worst thing that can happen? Right. You know, I start over. Who cares? You know, do something. So I just got up there and then all of a sudden I looked up, I saw my husband, I smiled, my parents were there. I was happy and I started talking. Yeah. It all goes back to that confidence, you know, that base that you built because you, again, back it up with the skill you prepared very well. It all comes out again. There's through lines here, Dana. I (laughs) I like this. (laughs) I love it. I feel like you're doing my segue jobs for me. Like there's not much I need to do here. You mentioned your husband a few times. Can you tell us how you met your husband now? Yeah. Seems like a cool story. I was I was doing some weird, creepy IMDB stalking, I'm not going to lie, and there were little snippets, and I want to get the full story from you. Yes. I, you know, I got divorced. I was getting divorced, and I, um, I lived with two, like, really fun, awesome women. One of them was, like, my best friend from growing up, mm-hmm. and they said to me one night, oh, we, we should go see this band at CBGB's, which used to be this great, like, punk club in New York City and my ex-husband was a guitarist in a band and everything and I was like eh, I don't I'm so tired of going to see bands like they're never that good they're never whatever yeah. so they said oh no we should we should go let's just go do it tonight so we said okay we were sitting up on the roof here in New York City like getting tan you know what I mean like up on the, like the roof of our apartment building and this other woman said oh we're gonna meet this really good friend of mine who works for philosophy and she they have this new perfume called falling in love and it's pheromones, and it's supposed to make you like attracted to the attractive to the opposite sex. So we were like, all right. So as a joke, we put on these pheromones, 
And we went out and we met all these different guys. And it was hysterical. It was like one of those nights where you're just like, is this just a coincidence or is it just because we're out and we're women? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and, and we walked into CBGB's and I looked up and I saw him up on stage and there was just something about him. Mm-hmm. He had like these broad shoulders. He had this guitar slung on him and he looked confident and comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I, and I love guitar players. Like I love, I always did. Like I just, you know, whether it's, like Keith Richards or Pete Townsend or something like that. Growing up, I was just like always a sucker for guitar players. Mm -hmm. So I saw him and I was like, wow. And my friend who knew him or kind of knew him said, oh, he's really young and he has a girlfriend. And I was like, oh, all right. So whatever. So then they started playing and I was like, holy crap, this band's amazing. And they're very much like the clash and this mixture of music. And he was just like such a showman in a good way, like Mm -hmm. not an over the top way. And I was just like, wow, this is awesome. And as soon as the show was over, he jumped down off stage and the mutual friend, she introduced me to him and he looked at me and he shook my hand. And when he said, Dana, he said, Dana, right? And I said, yeah, nobody ever gets my name right. Everybody says Dana. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, like that stuck out to me and I thought it was adorable. And then you know, but I was just doing whatever. I, I left. And the next day I got a call at work and from my friend who said, oh my God, my friend called me and said that he doesn't have a girlfriend and he's not that young. Meaning, <laughs> I think we were both like 30 or 32, you yeah. know, and he's not that young and whatever. And he's got another show next week and he wants you to go. And then that was, that was it. Like I went to that next show and oh. we moved in together immediately. He had grown up in New Jersey like I had down at the Jersey shore and his two best friends I had no like weird connections with. And mm-hmm. it was just this strange thing. And it was just yeah. meant to be, it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. We got married two years later, had our son a year later. And yeah. The rest, rest is history. history. <laughs> I, love it. Yeah. I love that so much. Now, listen, I'm a big, everything happens for a reason kind of gal. I don't know if you are too, but I'm mm-hmm. curious about your first marriage and how you think that set you up for a very successful second marriage of everything falls into place. Like talk me. Yeah. You, one of the things that I thought at one point, I think, which is a pretty telltale sign of the difference between the relationships. At one point I thought that Mike liked me more than I liked him. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of cool. Like I had never been in a relationship where I feel that kind of thing. But then I realized it wasn't that he liked me more than I liked him. It was a reciprocal. Mm-hmm. And you felt respected and understood. Mm-hmm. And that is something that, we, like, I think a lot of women fall prey to this. They fall in love or they fall in like with an idea of a guy. Yeah. And they do everything. And all of those things that they fall in love with or like with are the things that they end up trying to change about them. And the things that they end up like, if I could just get him to do this, he'll be perfect for me. Or if I could just, if he just called me, when, you know what I mean? Or just paid attention. We're completely different creatures. Mm-hmm. You have to be comfortable and happy with who you are before you can ever share that experience with somebody else. Yes, somebody can help you gain the confidence and do that. But chances are, it's not going to be somebody that you're partnering with. 
they're going to be attracted to you for confidence and for whatever. And I, I knew at that point I had nothing to lose. So it was like, we were both, and he was engaged and broke it off. So, you know, I had gone through a marriage of trying to make somebody happy and always trying to change them to trying to work together to get whatever we wanted for the future. And the best, the, like I said this in my TED talk, but the most important thing you could do is find the right partner in life. Mm -hmm. And that person will support you when you need it, will help you through the really hard times and you have to do the same for them. There has to be a give and take. And everything that we've been through, he's been by my side and I can't think of anybody else I would rather do it with. Oh, it's so, I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy to hear that story. The perfume spritz is my favorite thing. Like that was just such Isn't that hysterical? I there's, love that. There's a Life magazine article uh-huh. where they talk about the science of falling in love. So like a year after we had dated, uh-huh. my friend asked me to talk to Life magazine to talk to him about using the perfume. And because uh-huh. it was like a marketing thing, they're like, can you play it up a little bit? And I was like, yeah, I don't have to say anything. Nobody will ever see it. You know, I talk about it. cover story of Life magazine. 31-year-old Dana Commandator met her husband in a singles bar in New York City. It was like, it wasn't a singles bar. It was, it was a very cool other event. <laughs> but it, um, you know, it was just, it was a lot of fun. And it was, it was oh, kind fun. of cool. But yeah, that was a, that's always a fun part of the story. Oh, it's a great story. I'm so glad we have it. I love it so much. I'm telling you, my sister is going to eat all this up. I cannot wait to send this to her. She's going to die. She's just- <laughs> Okay, let's transition now. I'd love to talk about your son and your mm-hmm. activism work and how that all got started. Obviously, you got started in the work because your son was diagnosed with autism. Mm-hmm. It, um, you know, he was, he was young. He was very young. And we had moved to Los Angeles. We noticed he wasn't speaking. And he was definitely different. But you don't really know because he's our only child. And you don't have a lot of experience with raising kids. So we took him to um, get checked for his two-year-old checkup. And I'm like, he's not speaking, you know, and they, they make you go through all these different things and they, and they send you for a hearing test. And we took him for a hearing test and he didn't want to put on the headphones and there was an issue. And one of the technicians said to the other technician, seems more like autism to me. And I had never in a million years thought that. And I just looked at her and said, what? And she was like, nothing. I wasn't talking to you. I'm like, no, you were. What did you just say? I was like, what happened? So I went home, I got on the internet mm-hmm. and called my husband. He was at work and I'm like, he's autistic. Like, he's like, put the internet down, just stop. You know what I mean? Just walk away from the keyboard. And I went through the whole thing and I read it to him and I read all the stuff. He was like, yeah, he is. Mm-hmm. So we, we didn't know much about it. We didn't, you know, I wasn't like devastated or anything. Right. I was just like, I don't know. Okay. So then we got him diagnosed mm-hmm. and, um, I remember the regional center calling me like, we want to tell you that your son is autistic. I'm like, okay, now what? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like, what do we do? Right. And it immediately, it, it turned into, well, how do we, what do we learn? What do we do? How do we get better? So I started reaching out to people who had autistic children. Mm-hmm. And then I started finding out about autistic adults, you know, cause you don't know much about them. And I started reaching out to them. And that's where I got so much of my advice from. I mean, I got to talk to Temple Grandin, who is a very famous autistic person. And just like a lot of adults doing advocacy. And I realized there was this whole conversation going on about how to cure autistic people when that was the wrong conversation to be had. When it was, how do we understand, accept, and respect autism? And 
I started getting very involved with advocacy because I didn't hear, I wanted to give autistic adults a voice. And then I realized that there were so many of them doing it. I've taken, I've taken a step back because it's like, who wants to hear from me? I'm not like, I'm happy to talk to parents and talk to do stuff like that, but there's no better person to hear from than an autistic person. So I just was trying to give an area or give a venue or give space for people to speak and talk about it and have this paradigm shift right. from a cure to acceptance. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the journey. And I also stopped talking about, I don't talk about my son and, and anything individual because that's his story. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to talk about things. Too many parents, I think, make the mistake of talking about everything that's wrong with their child mm-hmm. on social media. And assuming that this child is never going to read this, when in the end, all you hear from autistic adults was, I heard my mom cry all the time. I, you know, I saw how, what a burden I was. And society loves that story. And that's not the story that that should be told. And now I'm not saying that there's not challenges and I'm not saying that it's not tough, but you have to remember that there's a person that can comprehend all this just because they can't maybe speak it. Mm. their receptive ability is so much stronger and you're doing a lot more damage by, you know, thinking like, Oh, you know, it's okay to talk about this when I don't think, I think it's better. That's his story. And that's up to him if he wants to talk about it. Absolutely. I think it's just such important work. And I think an important perspective shift that I was happy to learn about through you. I'm curious what you think over the last few years, maybe even the last decade, how, representation has changed like what have you noticed about representation now I'm I think we definitely have a bit more I can point to a few examples do you think it's good do you think it's accurate do you think we're on the right track what is your reaction I think it definitely has swung more towards the like the idea of the autistic savant and Mm -hmm. the person who is like has these superhero like abilities and you know it's like everybody always says to me oh what's he really good at you know, and I don't mind, like, I, I don't think it, you know, it's an issue, it's an issue, but it's like, it's more of not every autistic person has found their, their inner voice or their inner strength. Mm-hmm. So it's realizing that obviously that all people are different, but you know, the way the media portrays autism now, it's either one of two things. There's, I call it inspiration porn when you have like, oh, the local high school football player was kind and took the autistic girl to the prom. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's whatever, but it's also, it's not a bad thing to show kindness, but it's again, not about the autistic person. It's more about the person that did it. Right. I think the, and like TV shows, like, you know, the good doctor and stuff like that. I don't really watch that. But I think it's more like they're normalizing Mm -hmm. autism to a certain degree and making people more curious about it, which I think is really good. I mean, there's a massive shift in where, you know, I would say in the past 15 years, it's unbelievable, like what the change that it's gone through. Right. So work to be done, but definitely on the right track. So it's nice. to Yeah. Yeah. And it's just understanding it more and, mm-hmm. and respecting it more. And I yeah. think you will, um, we'll see even more changes. I, I still don't want it. You know, you still have people that talk about a cure, what they can do or whatever, but mm-hmm. they'll learn. Right. <laughs> totally. Totally. So a lot of your activism journey has to do with, like I said, the perspective shift. Do you have mm-hmm. any tips for somebody who's having trouble coming to terms with adjusting their expectations about 
X, Y, and Z about anything that isn't going as planned in your mind. And that, again, applies back to our career conversation too. Any tips for adjusting the expectations and making your perspective something that can enhance your decision making? Well, you have to look at why. You always have to go back to the why. What is your motivation for this thought path or this area that you're going in? And if you don't know what the why is, then you don't know why you're doing this and you're constantly going off. Like, again, I go back to advertising. This is why I like it. There's a brief. Mm -hmm. If you say to a creative person, come up with a commercial for Taco Bell about tacos. Now you can go off in any direction you want, right? And you could try to like do everything that, you know, and then people will judge it and there's no criteria to judge it against. Mm -hmm. But if you say, I want you to come up with a commercial about tacos that shows that tacos are now sold for breakfast, let's say. And, you know, tacos mainly a lunch thing. So we want to shift people's idea of buying tacos for dinner. And then now we want them to buy them for breakfast. How would you do that? So now you're narrowing in on the idea or the why as to why you're doing something. So to me, that's one of the most important things when you have stress. Like I, I've had anxiety my whole life. And it, and it's how you shut your brain down. You have to start feeding it because your brain feeds off of negative or positive energy. So you might as well fill it with positive energy. Um, and it's just figuring out your why. It's like, why am I doing this? If I'm doing this for other people, if I'm doing this for this reason or for that reason, I, that's not good enough. It, it gives you a chance to regroup and breathe and figure out a different path into it. You have to know exactly why you're doing things and what's happening or you have to be okay with I might make a mistake and learn from it mm -hmm. and it's like you know I have a lot of tattoos I don't regret much people who have tattoos mm -hmm. you can't be this like I'll, somebody will say to me I want to get a tattoo but I'm not exactly sure what I want to get and I know it's going to be on me forever I'm like you can't really care like you have to go, go into it going, I don't care that I'm going to have this one tattoo on my arm for the next 50 years. Like I, I'll just add to it or do something else to it. Like you have to be okay with making mistakes. You have to be okay with learning from them and you have to know why you did them to mm. learn, to learn from them. Yeah. I love that. You have such good advice. I feel like I'm soaking it all up like a sponge. I'm so happy. Call me anytime, Rachel. <laughs> I love it. Okay. A segment we do every week just to kind of get to know you a little bit more and reflect for a minute. We call it Her Reflections. We go through our acronym. H mm -hmm. is for happy, something you're happy about in this moment. E is for energized, what is giving you energy right now. And R is a recent realization that you've had. This could feed into the discussions we've just had or they could be totally separate or different. However you want to interpret, the floor is yours. Okay. So the H for what am I happy about right now? I mean, it, I think everybody that has good health right now should be happy about it. Absolutely. So I think that's the main thing. And I'm happy that I have my family around me. Yeah. I think I'm always energized about baking. There's always, I find a recipe, I find a technique, I find something, I find an ingredient and it just lit. Like I, I just, love it. I mean, I walk into the kitchen after a long day of work or I wake up in the morning and I'll have a dream about something and I just walk into the kitchen and it's what gets me going. I love it. And it's all me. It's the only thing I do in my life that's just mine. For you. And our realization. I think the realization that I'm not as much of a homebody as I thought I was. <laughs> 
I enjoy being the energy around other people. Like I love, like my dream would be to work from home three days a week and be in the office two days a week yeah. and have that energy from other people. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to think that I was a homebody and never wanted to leave my house and I was always angry when I had to. Mm -hmm. But I'm realizing now, <laughs> the biggest realization is that I, I do like society a little bit and I want to be around it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're definitely a people person. I'm like that. So I, I get it. Even this, like sitting on this call, I'm like, yes, she's giving me the energy I need. It's like a good little break from, from the normal. So thank you. Yeah. Yes. I am so thrilled to have sit, sat down with you today. I thank you for letting me fangirl a little bit because I am like, I'm very excited and a little bit overwhelmed, but in the best way. This That's was awesome. a fun discussion. Thank you for sitting down and happy holidays again to you and your family. Happy holidays to you. Best of luck. Reach out if you need any career advice or you want to do something. I'm here to help you. Consider me your mentor in that area if, you, if you'll have me. <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> Kick an ass. All right. Thank you I'll so much. The best. Thanks, Take care. Bye. You guys, I seriously can't get over this. Did you, I, I'm just going to recall, like, she said she'd be my mentor. So I am her mentee forever. You can't shake me now, Dana. This is real deal. I'm so excited. And it's true, everything we said. Me and Emily specifically have loved Dana, like we said, since last Christmas when we met her on TV. And she's been part of our baking journey because you guys know Emily and I have been baking a lot, especially in quarantine and doing our Instagram story bakes. And I would tag Dana all the time, especially when I had a black manicure. And she would always just give us little tips and tricks about we were ever stuck on any of the bakes. She would explain one time we were making macarons and they all kept cracking. We couldn't figure out what was wrong. Our shells just weren't coming out right. And I DM'd her in such a panic and I was like, Dan, I don't know what we're doing wrong. Your macarons are always perfect. What do we do? What do we do? And she literally, I'm not, I'm not kidding, sent back a video of herself being like, girls, hey, relax. Listen, it's an easy fix. All you got to do is keep the oven temperature. Don't do two racks at the same time. Like she gave us all the tips we needed. And the second batch came out perfect. Everybody loved them. They were so good. That's just how Dana is. Oh my God. I just hope that one day I can be someone's Dana. That's truly my only wish. I am so thrilled about this episode. And like I said, a really great way to round out 2020. We put out 39 weeks in a row of content since March 22nd. I've put out an episode every single Sunday. So many people have made this possible. I mean, we've had so many fun guests. Obviously, Dana and people like her who, who come on the show just for an episode to share what they've learned and to help us grow in our careers and or in relationships or whatever it might be, but also to all of the friends who have come on the show and kept it interesting. And it's been such a fun way for us to keep in touch throughout quarantine and everything's been so weird. So I'm really proud of the show. I'm proud of how consistent we've been and so grateful to anybody who's listening right now anybody who's been listening for a long time or if you're just finding us now thank you for being here thank you for letting me do this this has been really really fun and hopefully i will make a career of it soon with dana as my witness this will happen so yes just huge thanks all around if you like what you're hearing be sure to follow us on spotify or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts i'm just taking one week off we'll be back on january 3rd probably with a new year's resolution themed episode so subscribe in time for that. Also, please feel free to rate and review if you like what we're doing or if you have any ideas for what you want to see in 2021. Definitely find us on Instagram at her.blog.life. I'll have lots of Dana clips, I'm sure, there. You could also find more blog posts on herbloglife.online. You could see old posts there. For behind-the-scenes videos of recordings like this one, just find my channel on YouTube. Just search Rachel Malik and I should pop right up. 
that's all we have for now. Happy New Year. Happy holidays to everybody listening. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being here. And like we said, we'll see you on the 3rd for another episode. I'm Rachel Malik. This has been the Her Life Blogcast.